0: Hello and welcome to Concert Pipeline. That's Jen Schippel. And that is Steve Jones. And today on the podcast, we have a band called Crash Test Dummies.
1: That should ring a bell for uh, at least a few folks.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, you'll know them from their song, uh, which was a big hit back in the
1: 90s. You might not know it's called that, but once you hear it, you will remember it.
0: Yes, it's unmistakable. and. Uh, and really put them on the map. They, you know, and help build their career. And it's, I mean, this is the, I think, the 25th anniversary of uh, their uh, their album that that song uh, was on, which um, was called "God Shuffled His Feet." And um, and so they're they're touring to kind of play a lot of songs off of that album. They're they're throwing some other stuff as well, some fan favorites, and. Uh, And so we got a chance to sit down and talk to Brad Roberts, the lead singer of Crash Test Dummies at uh, the chapel in San Francisco.
1: Right. Yeah. And uh, that's a venue that you've been to previously on several occasions. I'd, for some reason, never been there before. So I was pleasantly surprised. I'm like, wow, this is a, a cool venue. Plus... Parking took five seconds. It did. That never happens in San Francisco. I know we
0: got really lucky with parking. Yeah. The uh, the venue was great. Uh, the,
1: the venue was fantastic. Yeah, it was uh, it was like a little chapel, kind of. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what it used to be. I don't. Know. Maybe it was a chapel a long time ago. Who knows? But uh, we're not
0: historians here. Yeah. So
1: what? We're not historians. We're not historians. Let's put that out there right now. We're right. not historians. If we ever say anything history related, we might be totally foolish. If shit. you're coming to Concert Pipeline for your facts, you've come to the wrong location. You have. You have. <laughs> Wait a minute. You know what? I've got something. I'm totally going to go off on a tangent for a second, but you just reminded me of something so weird. You know when uh, people say, oh my God, Saved by the Bell? I'm Saved by the Bell.
0: Yeah, you know, Zach Morris and uh, A.C. Slater and Screech. I guess. Is that what you're going for? No.
1: <laughs> but that's been an expression that people have said, oh my God, you know, Saved by the Bell. And I just realized, or I just learned uh, last night where that came from. Um, so I was trying to find a new TV show, and uh, I stumbled upon the show called Lore. So I decided I'm just going to watch the first episode. So Saved by the Bell goes way back to 18-something, Um when, like, doctors couldn't quite figure out if you were really dead or not. Oh. So there were some innovative <laughs> uh, engineers at the time that would, um, that would uh, you know, construct, like, a tube that went from the coffin, you know, all the way up to the grass. And there was literally a string in there with a, with a uh, bell on top. So if they bury you and you're in a coma or something... And you come back later, this bell has a rope attached to it that's oh. then attached to all of your limbs. So when you start flailing like crazy because you realized you've just been buried alive, the bell starts going off and the grave diggers come back and you're it, saved by the bell.
0: <laughs> wow, okay. Isn't that insane? You know, there's just another solution to that, right? How about <laughs> not bury the alive?
1: <laughs> yeah, but check your pulse. How about yeah, that? Yeah. That nobody... Thought about that? Like maybe check your polls.
0: Apparently, back then it was a lot easier to just rig up a bell attached to someone that you, someone walking by by may or
1: may not hear. Right? <laughs> Can you imagine going to a graveyard and all these bells? Like everybody has a bell. Right. You know, you go every week to you know put flowers on a grave, and you're wondering if the bell is going to go off.
0: It just keeps and there's ringing bells ringing from all across the cemetery. Yeah, <laughs>
1: it's insane. How crazy is that? And that doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Right. I mean, that kind of seems like the Dark Ages to me. But I guess the Dark Ages were even worse. I apologize because I went way off on a tangent. That was a tangent. That was such a tangent, but I did want to share that story. It's a great story. We've got a great story coming from you later, but that was my little thingy that I wanted to share. And I completely forgot what we were talking about. The chapel. We
0: were talking about the chapel. And
1: Brad. And Brad. Brad's fun. Yes. That guy was fun to talk to. And after the interview ended... (laughs) Our conversation with Brad didn't stop. No,
0: no, we talked to him for another thirty or forty minutes. Uh, yeah, after and yeah.
1: I think our social time with him was longer than the actual interview was, which probably. is very unusual, you know, for us at Concert Pipeline because often, um, you know, when we do interviews uh, on site, the band members are super, super crazy busy. You yeah, know, and they, they have can't to go allocate that kind of, Or yeah, they yeah, yeah. have
0: you know other commitments, yeah. or they're yeah. just done and you know go go off right. But right, right. You know, but we had a great conversation on and off mic with uh with Brad. Um and uh yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit. But Jens, you know, you as we get closer to October, you know that hunting season's
1: coming around. I do. Yeah, yeah. This was um a topic of much, much discussion. It still is. But uh just a few years back when you went and um decided to jump into the whole hunting season thing for the first time in your life, and that was, what, two years ago?
0: Yeah, I, I went out and observed uh, a bunch of friends going out on a bunch of duck hunts mm-hmm. a couple years ago, and got you know the itch to do it myself. Did not do well in it last year, as you could hear if you go back to older episodes of Concert Pipeline, <laughs> <laughs>
2: you
0: can, <laughs> you can uh, find out, but, uh, but learned a lot and went out on a, a lot of... You know, great educational hunts. Well, this past weekend is kind of the uh, unofficial opener to the start of hunting season of sorts. I mean, there's deer hunting that's been going on for a couple of weeks, but uh, this was dove hunting uh, uh, opener.
1: So this, I didn't one. know dove hunting was a thing until you had just told me
0: dove a few days a thing. ago.
1: I'm like, oh, dove hunting. Oh, that's a thing. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's why doves cry. Is that why? Uh, I'm sorry. That <laughs> thank, was, thank you, Prince. That was horrible. That was <laughs> awful. I'm going to go leave now. You can continue this Okay, moment.
0: we'll continue without Jens. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so
1: tell us about it.
0: Yes. So I went out solo on uh, my first ever dove hunt. Um, I was given advice on where to go. Uh, and so i was like oh. at first i wasn't you know totally about it i'm like okay i'm more interested in duck hunting and i've never been on a dove hunt it seems okay but they don't seem as meaty as uh you know as a duck so i'm like is it worth all that effort you know
1: okay wait a minute are you suggesting that you actually got to the point of eating a dove after the hunt
0: so um, I will tell you this story chronologically.
1: Okay, 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 um, yeah. I don't want to jump ahead, but I'm getting a little excited. Like, okay, dove hunting, and you were talking a little bit about it not being quite as meaty, which suggests that you ate Well, a dove something. is
0: smaller than a duck.
1: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So there's that.
1: Yeah. Hence, but sometimes a... there's no eating of anything after one of these hunts. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, you're, you're spoiling the lead, Jen. But... All right, all right, all right. I'll stop being a spoiler. Continue, so, continue. So I
0: went out, right, and this is, you know, another early morning hunt, but this is a lot easier than duck hunting. You don't have to get on the waders. You don't have to uh, carry a bunch of a, a ton of decoys, a bag full of them, and trudge through marsh or anything like that. You just go up. You walk less than a quarter of a mile or something, you know, from where you park and uh you know you can set out a couple decoys uh, a spinner mojo that could kind of get some movement going and you know around you get them interested in everything and just wait for them to come to you because they're all around they'll just fly around and and it's one of the few hunts where if there's more hunters that's actually kind of better because they stir them up they'll shoot at birds and it'll kind of uh, uh, flare them over to uh, where you are or to other hunters you know and so I went out to this spot and, uh, that I'd gotten advice on and there were probably 25 other hunters there all in, in, in the area where I was, you know, hunting all in kind of a circular, uh, area. Um, every, you know, group of hunters is probably about 20, uh, or may- maybe 40 yards away from each other, you know? So you gotta be careful where you're shooting, right? You're not going to shoot in the direction of anybody. Uh, but, um, but there's good opportunity around there, right? Um, and, So I get out really early. I got up to this this spot probably about 5 a.m. or so, uh, maybe a little before.
1: What is up with all the wildlife having to get up so damn early?
0: I know, right? Well...
1: Doesn't any... Isn't there something that sleeps in no. where you can go start shooting around noon?
0: No, early bird gets the... Ah,
1: oh, gets the bird. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, well, so what's a spinner so, thing? Sorry. So so for those of a, us that don't know what a spinner thingy with mojo is, what is that? It's called
0: a mojo. And so it's it, like a decoy that uh, is battery powered and its wings spin. So it gets, you know, birds thinking, oh, hey, there's a the bird over there, you know, and kind of attracted, tra- you know, seeing the, the visual and kind of going over, uh, near where it is right
1: so it's not like duck lawn art with the wings that flap when it's windy
0: i mean it kind of is but uh but (laughs) But it's more
1: realistic
0: yeah a little more realistic and uh and yeah it's something to you know lure in the the birds
1: okay and then when you go when you go out for for dove hunting is it the same spots where you later on in the year go for nope Duck hunting, different spots?
0: Nope, uh, because yeah, at least you know. I mean, I guess that maybe you can. I don't know where the other places are, but the place where I went, I mean, you're not in a marsh or anything. Like you know, so you're you're not out in the, um, you know, in that in that sort of area. You're just on land. You can wear a little bit of camo. You don't really have to. Mm-hmm. I, I did. I wore a camo shirt, but I had a sweatshirt on really just uh, over it. And so.
1: So when you're on land, you're just like hanging out at like the public park or something.
0: Yes. Where kids are and you try not to hit the kids. Well,
1: that, that early in the morning, we would hope there weren't too many kids. Well, hopefully. Because people are out shooting. Just,
0: just pedophiles and stuff. <laughs> <right>? Waiting. <laughs> Along with us. Oh, house.
1: God.
0: <laughs> all for our prey. Oh, geez.
1: So what I'm getting um, to is so, there. I'm assuming that there are like. There are places that you go to that uh, there's land, you pay whatever, and that's hunting land. And you hope that there are doves there. Yeah, and
0: so I didn't have to pay for land or anything. I had to pay for, you know, license and mm. uh, to do it. But, um, yeah, you go out. It's public land. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so you can, you can hunt there. But you need, you need the proper credentials and everything. You have to use the right ammo. And, uh, and so uh, to, to move ahead... In the story, so I, I'm there. Uh, shoot time is about six o'clock, uh, just after six o'clock because it's thirty minutes before sunrise, and uh, and so. Long story short, like I, you know, I took a couple shots um, at some birds. You know, there were I saw a couple, and so I I would shoot, and then the, the uh, these other groups. I yeah, uh, you want to sit next to a tree, um, you know, because they go around trees and everything. So I was sitting under a tree and. Then there's, uh, you know, I hear these other groups, you know, shooting, blam, 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 blam. Mm-hmm. I didn't shoot crazy like that or anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm like, man, they must be getting some birds, right? They, they're doing well or, or something, you know, because there's a bunch of guys and they're t- taking tons of shots. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, that's, that's interesting, but I'm not getting anything. Uh, I didn't uh, and I'm not hitting anything and I, and I at about halfway through I texted you know my buddy John who's mm. my hunting buddy who told me to go up there and um, and he was hunting with our friend Joe uh, mm. and uh, and two other guys on his uh, grandparents property right mm. and uh, and so I checked you know we were checking in with each other how you doing as I can I didn't get anything yet uh, but I was determined right mm and, uh, and he's like, okay, well, you know, I have, you know, this, this many. And, you know, he, I think he said he had like eight and Joe had five or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two other guys had a couple each also. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, good, good job. And so I, I leave at about nine thirty, Uh, you know, I call it, uh, I, I mean, the wardens had uh, come over and they check your gun, make sure he's mm-hmm. in the right ammo mm-hmm. and that you have your license and everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he said other people, you know, hadn't gotten anything either, you know, uh, but some had gotten a few. Uh, so as I'm walking, you know, before I walk out, I hear the other group closest to me. One of the guys is telling him, man, telling the warden, it was 10, ten times better last year.
2: Oh,
1: interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: And and I'm like, oh, okay, so maybe it's not just me.
1: Mm-hmm. So they're shooting a lot and probably not hitting much, right?
0: That's it, right? They're shooting a lot at single birds there's not mm. big groups of them or anything like that there are a couple single ones that they're all just like blasting at it and mm. missing like <laughs> you know like a, a doof and so as i'm walking out i walk by at least three or four groups and i walk by and talk to the warden again and mm. uh and uh and talk to some of the you know each of the groups as i'm passing by i'm like hey how'd you you guys doing mm-hmm. mm, nothing nothing mm-hmm. you know and uh and one you know one of the guys i, I said hey i th- think i ever heard you saying it was 10 times better last year and he's mm-hmm. like yeah we you know limited which a limit is shooting 15 doves by such and such time and we're out of here mm-hmm. and this time don't have anything
1: All right wow you know so
0: yeah. uh so same story down the road also maybe that one or two that they got you know but mm-hmm. nothing really to speak of so wow so the spot that was really great last year and there were a lot more hunters out last year mm-hmm. like n- didn't do well this hmm. year so
1: Wow, wow, so that's not really- you know related to skill, that's just bad luck, yeah, you know it's like you 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 are super excited about going to a concert or 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 something you know or a football game or whatever it is for six months, you know, and there's all this anticipation, and you go and it's just a terrible game you know it's it's not something you can control,
0: yeah, so. So, uh, so yeah, so that's how it wound up, I mean, really, but uh, for me. But, I mean, talking to Joe and John afterwards, I mean, John ended up limiting at about 15. Mm-hmm. Joe, I think, got like eight. Mm-hmm. So they, they both did really well.
1: But they got lucky. Um, they had a good spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and
0: private land. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that sort of, I mean, on you know, on their own private land, not public land or anything. Well,
1: so. you should shoot outside of your house. I mean, this is private land, right? So maybe private land's better.
0: Okay, yeah. That...
1: It should be okay because you have like a license.
0: Yeah, I have a license. Not for long if I'm shooting out on, outside my house. I'm not going to shoot towards the road. I mean, they're, they're, they're around the path because there are doves around here, you know, and usually they hang out like around the path. Mm. But I'm not shooting towards the road and I'm not shooting towards my house. So. Well, just
1: as long as you don't shoot where their people are and oh, you should be okay. fine. That's how they okay. used to do it in the olden days, right? Yeah, with cars driving by and Well, yeah, you just, you know, you, you take a shot when there's no car anywhere. You can hear that when a car comes by,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, that sounds great, Jens. I think we should. We're uh, not gonna do that. So. Okay. So I, I mean, I'll tell you though. I was super self-critical at first because I'm like, okay, another. Steve Kirsch continues uh, in terms of hunting, and you know, I don't know, I was like, okay, I'm not thinking like there's situational factors. I'm, you know, blaming myself first, right?
1: Is Sorry. that was that what happens? I mean, that's what like, as soon do. as you start underperforming, you always blame yourself,
0: I, especially in this, yeah. right? Like I, I have to, I own, and I own my mistakes. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, that's the start to the hunting season more in October, you know, when we have opening weekend uh, and everything, but,
1: but, uh, when I'm, is that? And when in October, I think
0: October 19th.
1: Okay. But now, I mean, you've you've got to know that it's not you, right? You've got all this confirmation that there are so many other people out there. Um, in the same area that you were in that also got nothing
0: yeah, yeah, exactly, so that was that was vindicating a little bit it was
1: disappointing, but not your fault it's not exactly. skill here, it was just disappointing because it was yeah. stuff not you know not in your control
0: yeah so um so yeah so that's that's my my story, so I think we should bring Brad in. what do you think
1: I think we should, I think we should, um, so everything else was good, you didn't get stuck in the mud or um. Your uh, kayak wasn't required for this, right? So no, no kayak required. Didn't It'll sink. Okay. All right. All right. No, no, uh hunting drama.
0: Thank you for trying to make it more, you know, more drama. Yeah, I
1: was, I was just matter. I wanted to make sure you weren't leaving anything out. Yeah. All right, all right.
0: I'll give you all the details. So.
1: so when you said that, um, uh, you know, uh, doves aren't quite as meaty.
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty much it. I mean, so there's, are smaller birds than a duck. So I think Joe's going to give me, a there's like of
1: less food. breast meat basically. Cause yeah, that's I what you eat so. off of it.
0: I think so. But I hear it's really good
1: mm-hmm. actually. So, mm. so we'll
0: see. Yeah. I've never had it.
1: You know. I've never had any. I, uh, in college, my roommate was, um, he loved to go quail hunting and, uh, he loved to cook too. So he would go and shoot some quail, come back and, and prepare them. And they were delicious. I mean, I hear what you're saying about there's very little meat, you know, I mean, these bite-sized little appetizer things, but delicious, really good.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Unless our, you're a
1: vegetarian or vegan or something. Yeah. In which case, they're probably not good.
0: Probably not. I would say they're, they're probably <laughs> anti
1: Anti-killing things.
0: Yeah. Maybe there's an Impossible Dev burger. Okay. <laughs> no. All right, we're going to bring Brad in here, Jens, okay? Sounds good. Uh, now, we had a chance also to hear, he, you know... Uh, a little minuet that we talk about he played played on that we're going to play that after the interview um but uh we'll also play a song that uh that they played at um the chapel um as part of their set um and that before we get into the interview and this is a song called swimming in your ocean
2: all right let's hear it hi i'm brad roberts from crash test dummies and you're listening to concert pipeline <laughs> Stewart has always—he's he's the guy who's always fiddling with his hair and having all kinds of uh-huh. product in it—and I, I have none, so. No. That's why I'm I'm <laughs> i, just, I have my horrible hair. <laughs> Hide your shame. Yeah. Are you a are you a hair product guy or? I am. Uh, I have to be a hair product guy because my hair is dead straight. Yeah. And uh, to keep it off my manly face. That becomes necessary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How much time do you spend on your hair? <laughs> we just make this
2: all about Not your nearly hair. enough. That's why we're doing this as audio and not video. Yeah. I'm, I'm there with you. I'm like, three, three swipes is
0: one too many, uh, you
1: know? <laughs> yeah. every, every time I get my hair cut, they always ask me, well, what kind of product do you use? Or, you know, do you want this product? But I'm just, I'm too lazy. I don't have time or patience. I don't care. I just take a shower. I get out of the shower. You know, they ask me, which way do you comb your hair and stuff? And,
2: yeah, I, I don't know. Pay attention to anything. The that. way your head moves your hair in one direction or not is basically the way to go, I think, because yeah. then you don't don't have to think about it. Exactly. What about your beard? Oh, what what do I use on it or? Well, no, I mean, how is it oh. in terms of uh management? I've never oh. had a beard and I would think that it would be a little scratchy or maybe you'd have to wash it. How does that go?
0: I mean, I I wash it when I wash my face. I don't do anything extra for oh, okay. it though. And, you know, I shave I, I trim it once every couple of weeks a, a little bit, but then it's where the neck I love that we're talking about this yeah. like the, the neck hair is what, what bothers me that, and like the mustache I, you know area like I, I mm. shave all that off you it's know like itchy. once once a week, but it's not itchy. No, you see itching no. All the
2: time, like. Do you nah. have a do you have a girlfriend? I do, And does she have anything to say about that?
0: Not a lot, no, she's no? she's good with what I got, uh, you know? yeah. so yeah. yeah, she's pretty comfortable with it.
2: Good to know. Well, I shouldn't get us hung up on our, our hair and beard. No, I, that's, that's all we should talk about, <laughs> actually. <laughs> no, no. I'd be quite happy if it went, it went that way, sure. Yeah. Well, how's the tour been going for you, though? It's been going really well. You know, I've, uh, we've been on the, in the southwest here. In the and, southwest, uh, yes. Everything from Flagstaff to Anaheim to here. And um, it's a very interesting part of the country. Uh, I, I really, uh, I mean, first of all, for a Canadian like me, it's just absolutely paradise because it's nice and warm and there's, you know, all kinds of great landscapes that we wouldn't see here. When we were driving out of Flagstaff, it was like,
0: Jesus Christ, man, this so, is cosmic. yeah. Yeah, it's pretty
2: hot in Arizona right now, I imagine. It is. It's yeah. very hot. We also played in Phoenix, which was even hotter. I was very disappointed to learn, by the way, that Phoenix, where Alice Cooper once had a... Uh, is this going to be usable later? Are you doing a transcript, or is this... Uh,
0: this is all audio? It's gonna, We're going we're to flow with it?
2: I'm learning learning piano for the first time in my life. I always played the guitar for, before, sorry. I always played guitar before. And, um, you know, actually, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because when I was about eight years old, I... um, I played guitar. I uh, took Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm gonna start from the beginning. You're good. That's You're good. okay. But yeah. You got me
1: all self-conscious about my hair. I like trying to figure? Out, do I look good? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the, there's no video here, but I'm feeling <laughs> self-conscious.
2: So when I was a little kid, I took uh, piano lessons for like about a week or two with this really mean teacher, and then uh, I quit. But I always we always had a piano around the house, and I kind of goofed around on it. And now that I'm 55 years old, I've started to take piano back into my life and. What was boring to me when I was a little kid is now wildly interesting. Like, I'm playing these minuets by Bach and Mozart. And, you know, as a kid, I didn't really know how much there was to bite into there because there, you know, you've got markings on the score like uh, crescendo and diminuendo. So you, you get louder, you get softer, you get faster, you get slower. There's uh, fingering, there's staccato, which is playing the key like Dum, instead of da. And, you know, just to get the, the piano to sing so that the melody in the right hand is a little bit louder than the chords in the left hand or whatever, wherever the emphasis should be placed because, of course, in, in box time, for example, sometimes the important melodic line was in the left hand and the different voices would trade off and have equal prominence as opposed to there being a melody on top and a bass line underneath, which is what I started to learn about that the music from that period hmm. and I think once I learned that I, I, I suddenly became Able to listen to and enjoy Bach, who I found intolerable before. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all of a sudden one has
1: one one has an, an appreciation, right? Yes. One understands how the music was composed and
2: how it should be played. Exactly, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. How it was composed and how it should be com- played. I couldn't put it better myself.
0: So what brought you to wanting to, to you know, to tinker around with the piano at all?
2: Well, it was in part that um, I'd been. I'd been coming to this new appreciation of classical music. I started reading about it, which, you, which sounds like an ass-backwards way to come to listen to music, reading. But um, I'd heard the music before, and as a matter of fact, it all came back down to the fact that I wanted to study counterpoint, because I'm just geeky enough to want to do that. Mm-hmm. And counterpoint is, um, there's an old counterpoint book written in, I guess, the... 16th century maybe earlier by a guy named I can't pronounce it without it being embarrassing it's spelled F-U-X okay. which means Fox not the other thing <laughs> and um, he wrote this textbook on counterpoint that uh, that Bach studied and Mozart studied and that Haydn studied and the Beethoven studied we know all these people studied this book and it's a method for constructing music that does not rely on that old that the newer model which which is melody and, and bass, Mozart kind of took over that and that became more popular. As a matter of fact, by the time Bach was dead, the kind of music he was playing was out of fashion and his son was much more mm. popular. Mm. And and furthermore, Bach was not particularly known as a great composer in his time. He was known as a wildly gifted keyboardist and of. And And back then there were harpsichords and organs, but there weren't pianos. So when you hear Glenn Gould playing that stuff on the piano, it's a long way away from how anybody ever heard it back then. But anyways, all this became interesting to me, and I thought, you know, I'm going to study counterpoint. And then when I did study counterpoint, I realized that why why don't I go back to the piano and play the compositions that were informed by counterpoint? And um, what were very dull exercises to me as a young boy Suddenly became wildly interesting, and um, I'm really enjoying it. I mean, there's there's enough online teachers out there that you can get all kinds of uh, advice about, you know, how to sit and your posture and pedaling and technique. I may actually go so far as to get an actual teacher, which would probably Mm -hmm. be, you know, most piano teachers would probably tell me, you know, you can't just (laughs) YouTube this. Right. But uh, nevertheless. Uh, I guess it's been since Christmas time that I bought that for myself, my big Christmas gift. I got a, a, Yamaha, a Yamaha indoor uh, keyboard, like not an actual piano, which sure, t- sure. At started at like 10 grand or something. Mm. This thing was $1,000, but it sounds great. Mm. And um, since then, I've I've learned how to play, I would say, about eight short pieces, maybe 30 seconds to one minute. Minuets, uh, minuets. There, and, and a little, you know, a lot of the stuff that kids start with uh, come from, uh, well, for example, Bach left um, um, a book full of music for his wife to play called The Notebook for Anna Magdalena. Mm. That, well, that's what the title that it's acquired over the centuries. And it was basically music that she had to play for various occasions around in... Uh, you know, throughout the year there would be different because, of course, they they didn't play for secular reasons. They played mostly for religious occasions. Or, mm-hmm. uh, actually, you know what? Don't quote me on that because there are probably occasions that were secular that they did it for too. And somebody out there is going <laughs> to be going, that guy's not a box color. <laughs> but um, so, anyways, these pieces are relatively easy, not super, super easy, but relatively easy. And those are the basic Bach pieces that a lot of people learn, and that's kind of where I started.
0: Maybe we'll have you play one in, uh, at the end, since we have a piano about two feet away from us. So. <laughs> <I don't know.
2: laughs> I'd probably get gun-shy if you put a microphone in front of me playing the piano.
0: <laughs> did you take art, any art, not art history, I mean, did you take music history classes at all? Because it sounds like you know
2: a lot about it. Um, as a matter of fact, I didn't take any music classes at university. I took English literature and philosophy. Um, but I have since put myself through the um, sort of introductory history of music courses just on my own. There's a few really good ones out there that um, have prose as well as a CD, and you buy them together. Mm-hmm. And um, that's been really interesting, too. Because, it, again, it helps you appreciate, helps me appreciate, the music that I'm listening to, you know, to have some historic background And to know something a a little bit about the personalities of those people. Like, we don't know a lot about anybody in particular. And we know less and less as time goes into the more distant past. But some of the lives of the composers are really something else. In some cases, very tragic, like Robert Schumann. I think from the sounds of it, he was manic depressive. He used to literally get down on his hands and knees when he couldn't think of anything to write and pray (laughs) to God for God. and of course that probably made perfect sense and didn't sound like anything extraordinary during his time but when I read that I was like wow I never thought of that (laughs)
1: let's give it a try
2: and see if it works (laughs) right
0: and so tell me about your household growing up and you musically like your parents uh, tell me about they did they have an influence on you musically
2: siblings you know, they did, actually. And I didn't really realize it until later in life when I had to start answering questions like this. Um, when my mother graduated from high school, they did one of those uh, tests to see what you'd be best at in life. Um, there, there's a word for those tests. What are they called?
0: Career progression or something like that? What, what is it? It's a, I,
2: should, I, I
1: should know that. I failed that test, so I blocked enough. it out of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> You're not good at anything, apparently. Exactly. Um, I'm good at sucking. That's what, that's,
2: that's what the result was. <laughs> so my mom, uh, when she graduated, she was told, oh, "Clearly, you should be a musician because she had a singing voice that was unbelievably beautiful." And um, she never took any lessons. She had no. She couldn't sight read. But if she had had the wherewithal, she definitely would have um, been able to go out and sing standards in clubs. There's no question. Uh, she um, and the way she influenced me was, you know, since I was a little child, she sang at my bedside, and I know that sounds a little corny, but she really did. And she she sang songs just of the period that she grew up in that she liked. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them that were more contemporary at the time were like, and this is giving away my age. Um, Mary, the Mary Poppins soundtrack. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds pretty. Yeah, but the mar- I mean it's timeless. Mean, I don't
1: know that it gives away your
2: age because the one—the
1: the one that's in the movie theater right yeah, now—just right? just came out. That like, was, was the original. original? That's right. There's, there is another one. I haven't seen that one.
2: I'd like to see it actually. But the soundtrack for that is phenomenal. Um, and I knew the words to "Feed the Birds," which is like a five-minute song, by the time I was three years old. Mm-hmm. And um, all kinds of—she's uh, saying all kinds of stuff that—that that is now in pretty much firmly ensconced in my memory, sure. and although it didn't influence me in some kind of direct way, like, oh, I'm going to write a song that sounds like the Mary Poppins album, yeah. it did ex- expose me to melody at an early stage and sure. got my brain wired yeah. correctly.
1: Yeah, got you off to a good start.
2: Exactly. So, so
0: let's talk about the development of crash test dummies and uh, you know and how you guys all got together. How did you know each uh, how did you meet the rest of the band members and, uh, and kind of start the crash test
2: dummies? Well, my next door neighbor played the drums, and when I was a little kid he he told me i'm in a band and at that time, I thought of a band as being like a marching band yeah. <laughs> but he was my definitely my inspiration and um, he ended up when I was about 18 years old, opening up a little cafe, um, after-hours place, um, and they had an open stage. And um, it was a g- fairly groovy little establishment. People would go there after the bar and have, um, they would either eat because they're you know, drunk and hungry, or they would uh, order beer and teapots. I don't know how many time that, times that place got busted <laughs> for, for serving alcohol legally. Uh-huh. But, um, that's where I started uh, doing the first gigs that would you could call crash the Stummies, was at the Blue Note Cafe on Main Street in Winnipeg, Manitoba, mm. and we would we became the house band after a while. Started doing covers and stuff, right? Yes, it was all covers at that time. Um, some of them were even like you know as silly as the Spider-Man theme song, um, and some of them were Irish traditional Irish traditionals um, it, it was. Uh, very ad hoc kind of list also Alice Cooper we did some mm. of those songs because just stuff that I liked was basically the, <laughs> the rule um, yeah. and it wasn't until uh, I had, had nearly graduated from the University of Winnipeg you know towards I guess I was 24 by then that I started to write original material and um, Crash the Stummies continued to grow in that little venue uh but with a, a different, you know, mission, which was, in this case, to, to do my own material. Um, and I actually saved up my, my tips and um, made our a first the first demo that we ever made uh, from that. And that was the, the next sort of step for us. This was all very early on, you know, in the late 1980s, I guess.
0: And so, uh, your brothers in the band, like, tell me, I mean, sibling, sibling rivalry and everything, did you guys tour well together? Like, you, did you bat heads at
2: all? Well, as a matter of fact, I had a bass player who had a terrible attitude, George West. God love him. He's still my friend, but he was, and he was a great bass player, but he just didn't want to do anything I wanted to do. Mm. You know, he didn't like the songs I was writing, so finally I just said, listen, I don't need somebody against me. Get out of here. You're, and um, uh, I went and, and picked out my brother to replace him. So um, it wasn't as though uh, we, uh, you know, it's not like we grew up fighting as a band members together. It was much more a case of me wanting him to give me some relief from this other guy. Yeah, that's such pain in my ass.
1: Yeah, Save me from this guy, man. Yeah. Can you please replace him? <laughs> and well, did he welcome that or did he feel like he was being pressured into it? Or
2: As a matter of fact, he <laughs> did not want to come over to us. For a number of reasons. One was that he was already in a band and he owed them $800. I was like, dude, I can pay for that out of my tips. The other reason he didn't want to play with us was because we were so, uh, you know, he was already in a band. He was in a bar band. And at that time, bar bands like did uh, songs on the radio down to a T and they carried their own lights. And it was Mm. a completely different scene than what um, we were doing, which was playing, you know, Little after-hour clubs and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so he thought we were kind of like down there, below him, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or beneath him, would be mm-hmm. the better way of putting mm-hmm. it. Um, and not really, he didn't really take what we were doing seriously. Mm. But then we got a record uh, deal, astonishingly enough, <laughs> and um, he kind of realized that maybe this would be the right thing to do. So, but I really did have to you know, hammer away at them to get them yeah, to yeah, join us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh,
0: and so tell me about, kind of, when, when you launched to, you know, uh, to kind of mainstream, and how that kind of changed the dynamic
2: of the band. Um, well, you know, mainstream, I guess uh, the only sense that we were mainstream was in that we actually got a record deal and we, we played on the radio. Yeah. but the the album itself I'm surprised that it got any mainstream play because it really w- didn't sound like much going on at the time you've got to remember that at the end of the 80s a lot of the bands were screamers you know the vocalists could sing you know way up there and I have no register for that kind of singing at all so for me it was um, I didn't even take my own voice seriously I t- took songwriting seriously but I really thought that I would have somebody else sing them and when it came down to it, I couldn't get anybody to sing the songs with the inflection that I heard. So I just sung them myself in the hope that that might work out. Um, and as it happens, it did. Uh, Superman's song became a big hit in Canada. It only had a kind of a culty following down here. Mm. But it, um, it was a big hit in Canada. And I think it was precisely because it was not the usual rigmarole. That it that it got such a strong response, that's kind of a risky thing, though. You know, like either you swim upstream or you go with what you what is already known. And in my case, I couldn't do what was already known. Yeah.
0: Right. And so uh, Jerry Harrison worked on the album as well,
2: right? It, you... Actually, um, that was the second record. The first yeah. record was produced by um, Steve Oh, Steve Berlin, okay. from uh, Los Lobos. Yeah. And. Um, it was the second record, Ghost, uh, that, I'm sorry, that one was called The Ghost of Homie. Me. Um, God Shuffled His Feet
0: is the one that Jerry worked on. And he's local here, you know, we've actually had him on the podcast, too. So um, tell me about working with him um, on that album.
2: Oh, Jerry's a great guy. Um, I always loved the Talking Heads, and um, I always loved his keyboard playing. And it was kind of on the strength of that, though, that I, I called him up and asked him if he'd want to do this. Well, I didn't call him up. My <laughs> and our guy did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but uh, yeah I really enjoyed working with them. Um, we made the record at a studio that was uh, that was sorry, just trying to think back now. I was going to say that Jerry brought us to the studio that we worked on, but I guess it was our a and r guy who brought us there. was it in Canada or um, down here? like we're... no, it was down here, yeah. oddly enough um. We made the record in a recording studio that was frequented by Adrian Ballou. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. And Adrian Ballou happened to live out in, just outside of Chicago, like in the woods. Mm-hmm. And the recording studio was out there as well. And it began um, as a place that was constructed or th- that was uh, conceived by... Um, what's that guy who who uh, owned Playboy magazine. Oh, uh, Hefner? Yeah, Hefner. Yes, Hefner, yeah. yes. He, um, he, wanted, he, he used to like scope girls from his, <laughs> his office in this high-rise building mm-hmm. and, um, and decided to make a little sort of playhouse in the woods. And uh, there was a recording studio. There was a hotel. There was a golf course there was um a restaurant there was a club um, and uh it had gone untouched since the 1970s and um so when we went in there it was like there was eight tracks wow. uh, like alarm clocks in in all the hotel rooms mm-hmm. and um you know Orange and brown carpet, shag carpeting, <laughs> and glittery wallpaper. Piece of history, right yes, there. Yes, it really was. <laughs> um, That's awesome. So it was really, really quite a, quite a place to, to make a record. And um, I had wanted Adrian Ballou, uh the guitar player, to play on our record at least for one track, and. Oddly enough, he lived nearby, <laughs> um, and in fact, I think he made several of his records there. So, it, while in the '60s it had been populated by people like Jimi Hendrix and a bunch, you know, a bunch of those memorable, memorable folks from that area, it was also um, later on taken up by Mr. Blue, and so it became very handy to have him just nip over from across the highway yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and play on the, the lead track, which is Go Shove His Feet. He plays the outro part there. Yeah. And that was quite an experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Adrian Ballou, you know, he's such a, he's, uh, his playing is just so idiosyncratic. And he's, he has absolutely no training. He does everything by ear, which I had no idea of. Uh, and when he came in i said you know do you want to play this on this track during the outro and and he was like sure and i said do you want do you want to listen to the uh, to the song before you come in oh no no he didn't want to do that so he walked in and he played a part didn't like it cool. played another part didn't like it kept on playing parts over and over again until like i was kind of like what's going on here mm-hmm. like why didn't you listen to the tape i want to get Uh, and um, so then he put down his guitar and he said let's see what happens when we do this and he pushed all the faders up and when they were played together at the same time it was like this mishmash of guitar heaven Mm. it was unbelievable Mm. and it was like he totally saved the day by doing that Um, uh, Magic. That's if you go back and listen to that part, it really, it sounds very strange. It doesn't sound like a guitar solo at all because there's, it's not a solo. There's like five, six, seven parts going Mm. on, and he played it through an effect. Adrian Blue loves to have all kinds of effects, in conjunction with his electric guitar, and um, he used uh, uh, something that made your guitar sound like a bagpipe. Mm. So basically, the outro is like, you know, multiple of electric bagpipe. Yeah. <laughs> which is where he was, I thought. It's
0: pretty crazy. Uh, so how did the Dumb and Dumber uh, soundtrack come about? Like, You guys are, have the opening track on that soundtrack and you're kind of notable for that also.
2: Yes, yeah, so that, that was a very strange thing. We, First of all, I'm a huge fan of XTC and they were the ones who wrote that song. Mm-hmm, yeah. Or Andy Partridge, as a matter of fact. Um, and uh, so we we decided, or rather I decided, that I wanted Ellen, our backup singer, to sing lead in a song. And so we chose that song for her to cover. And um, most of the time, you know, you, if you're going to have a song in a, in a a movie soundtrack, like yeah. Dumb and Dumber, it's because the song is already popular and it will give strength to the, the movie sales and the soundtrack sales. Mm-hmm. In our case, the... Uh, the folks who were making Dumb and Dumber actually approached us and said, will you make a recording of that um, that cover song? And we're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> no reason not to. Um, and it ended up becoming like uh, the first single yeah. and, nice. and really uh, took off on its, of its own volition. I had no idea. Yeah. That was not our plan. It just came together through total serendipity.
1: See, sometimes it happens like that, you know, yeah. and it really helps to ha- have it playing in a movie that was a big deal.
2: Yes. Well, I think that's what made it such a big deal at all. Yeah. And, um, you know, Andy Partridge of XTC, I won't call him a friend because we don't know each other that well, but I have spoken to him on a a number of occasions, and I even met him in his house in Swindon and had lunch Mm -hmm. with him. Um, and I can't say that he was super happy to hear that we did so much better than he did with that song. I, I, I kind of made my hero a little angry with me. It was kind of... A <laughs> you didn't embrace it as much, huh? Well, you got to bear in mind the guys never had a hit as big as any of Crash Test Dummy's hits, and certainly not as big a hit in particular with um, Peter Pumpkinhead. Like They put that song out as a single as well, they did a fantastic video for it, and they had. Not much success, whereas for us it was a big hit. I thought that he would be super happy because it would mean more royalty money yeah, in yeah. his pocket. Mm-hmm. But I think he—he's just a little. T- Again, he, XTC have never had a really big hit, and and to to make 17 records over you know 30 years or whatever it's been, and not have a hit must be mm-hmm. extremely frustrating. Mm-hmm. And Andy himself is, um, you know, the poor guys. Uh, had a hard time dealing with being on the road. He had a panic attack on stage. Wow. And um, swore that he'd never do a live wow. show again. And mm. hasn't. And that was years and years and years and years ago. Yeah. That, I, I think it's incredible that they were even able to stay on yeah. the label once, the, mm. once he announced he wouldn't go on the road. Because what label is going to want to have a band that won't tour, right? Right. But they kept him on there. Yeah. They also, uh, you know, I don't know how... How big an XTC fan you you guys are, no, but uh, but um, yeah, their whole story is quite wild. If you if you Google Andy Partridge, there's a million interviews that uh, he does where he gives an account of the. Uh, the arc of the band over the years and he's a very articulate guy mm. he, he does not want to play live but he will come and do like in stores where he asks or answers questions from fans he loves doing that because he likes to talk to him talk about himself and he's really good at it mm-hmm.
0: so uh i wanted to ask you about weird al i'm a fan of weird Al, and i actually went to colorado a couple weeks ago to see him uh, at red rocks which is amazing amphitheater to, you know crazy crazy awesome venue um, but uh, he parodied your, your song, and I think you guys are pretty pretty stoked on that, right?
2: Yes, we really were. Um, I always thought Weird Al was hilarious. Um, and not only did he cover Mm-mm-mm, but he made it the first single. And um, I was totally stoked. As a matter of fact, we even ended up uh, doing a duet. Oh, fun. At... Um, much music which is Canada's MTV Mm. back in the 90s and um I went out there and then I was joined by him and he had a you know wig that looked like mine and he had the accordion out. It was really great. That's awesome. It's, it's interesting you should ask me that because a lot of people when that first came out said, so were you pretty pissed off that Weird Al stole your song? I was like, no. Doesn't, he doesn't steal songs. Yeah, that, exactly. He always
0: asks the artist. It's know? a huge
2: misperception, yeah. And, that is, and I'm glad you know that mm-hmm. because in fact he did. he does come to all the people that he that he uh, covers and he asks him and he doesn't have to uh, mm-hmm. like you can cover anybody's song and as right. long as you pay them that's that's that he's got great stories about you know uh,
0: times where he's hunted people down and like gotten backstage at a show just to get them to you know agree to do it and sort of things. he won't do it if, if he you know right. if they won't won't agree to it right yeah. so
2: well the it, other element there of course is that When he rewrites the lyrics, he asks the artist for half of the publishing. So, you know, that way he is able to make money as well as cover people. And if he didn't, um, what he really does is he collaborates with the other artists Mm. to some extent. And um, the collaboration is in the fact that he rewrites the lyrics and um, gets... Like I'm repeating myself now, but but gets half the publishing. I Mm. think that works really well for him. I think that way he's made a lot of friends with people, Mm. you know, and and people that have been willing to take themselves not very seriously. Like I was very, um, I admired um, Michael Jackson for allowing him to do. I'm I'm fat. Like Mm -hmm. I mean, I never thought Michael Jackson would would you know see thing see his way to be able to you know do something that was. That is parody, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But he did, yeah. especially with lyrics like that, because you never know what Weird Al is gonna do. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it must make you really nervous. Oh my gosh, Weird Al wants to do it. Oh, you know, he's gonna ruin the original because everyone's gonna know the Weird Al version. <laughs> I,
0: was, I was actually listening to. Uh, Ironic you mentioned that because I was listening to Macaulay Culkin's podcast like last week where he had Weird Weird Al on, and he said that Michael Jackson was a big fan of. Uh, weird owl, so you know, I think that's you know, fit in like they'd watch video his videos together and stuff.
2: So <laughs> oh, that's great What a great story. So tell me about going to the Grammys uh, Going to the Grammys. Well, that was quite something um, We w- we were uh, of course nominated for a couple of Grammy Awards I didn't think we would win any of them and I and I I was right <laughs> uh, That was a very eye-opening experience when I went to the uh, hotel room the night at the Grammys, there was uh, a suit there waiting for me. Nobody told me it was going to be there. Um, and I'm so, so nerdy that I can't remember what kind of a suit it was, but it was like a, a big name, for sure. Um, and I didn't wear it because it didn't fit, and I would have need to have it tailored. <laughs> and I was really very cynical at that point. I was just so exhausted from touring. Um, and then, when we got into the actual event, I had my parents along, and my poor father, who's a very anxious man, was like, he, it was interesting to see it through his eyes, because I'd been in the business long enough to kind of know what to expect, but mm. um, you know, they would announce the name of the, the winners, in, or the nominees in the category, and the, and the camera would come sweeping by each, each nominee. And oh, the I... camera was literally on me, for you know, two seconds, and then it was off, and that became the metaphor for my dad for what it was all about. It was like flash, boom, you know, and then they move on to something else, mm-hmm. and and that's what it is. It, it was a kind of a perceptive thing on his part because that really is like a little microcosmic view of how the business works mm-hmm. or how it did work at that time, which is, mm-hmm. was very different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very in one in one door and out the other very quickly.
1: Right.
0: Did you enjoy rubbing shoulders with some of the other stars, though, that night? Like, well, that... I kind of would have
2: liked to rub the shoulders of certain other stars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was not in the... <laughs> <laughs> <of> no. <laughs> not the way it turned out. No. <laughs> not the way it turned out, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's flash forward as we're winding out to, you know, the, what what's currently happening for Crash Test Dummies. So we got the 25th anniversary tour that we're, we're on right now. Mm-hmm. Are, are you guys also writing for a new album, or what, what does that look like for you guys?
2: You know, I'm not writing a new album, and people are sometimes disappointed Or when I say that, and they find it a little uh, cynical, perhaps. But, you know, writing records makes you no money these days. Yeah. Mm. Um, Spotify's played like 84 million times, and I have seen almost no return. You get almost nothing from
1: that, yeah. So go to the Spotify, label, or...?
2: Yeah, basically, when mm. this whole... Switch to streaming happened. Record labels went around the backs of the artists mm. and straight to the streaming uh, companies and made deals mm. and exchanged lots of money. And I not, mm. never saw any of it, and mm. I'm, I'm not seeing it now. And you can ta- talk to other artists about this. It's a phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it makes it very difficult to want to write songs because, you know, it's like you're not going to make any money. And in fact, you're going to lose money because although it's much... Uh, less expensive to make a record now than it was 20 years ago, um, it's still nevertheless expensive. You, know, you, can pay, you can easily pay 50 grand just to, mm. you know, to make the recording and do the artwork and all that. <clears throat> I mean, you could even spend less, but you're not going to make that money back guaranteed. Mm. Now a lot of fans or music listeners they're they're like that's not a very artistic view. You sound like a big hypocrite who just wants to make money. Uh-huh. And in fact it's like well would you go to work for free? Do you Ooh, want to do right. anything the, unless you're being paid?
1: Money's got to come from somewhere. Right?
2: Yes, it's got to come from somewhere and it's it's also, you know, like just to go on the road for example as we're doing now, it costs like 40,000, 50,000 bucks to get a tour off, off the ground. Mm-hmm. You, gotta, you gotta pay for, um, you gotta book the hotels, you gotta book the, the flights, mm-hmm. you have to pay for ground transportation, um, whether it's renting the van, buying the gas, um, you need money to eat. Um, there's a whole bunch of expenses that come into play that you have to, um, that you have to pay for before you even get on the road. So it's expensive to tour, and then you got to hope that you get um, the money back. Now, of course, we wouldn't leave unless we had a clear idea that we weren't going to lose money. Sure. Um, but um, to me, playing this music now under these conditions is, is kind of the ideal way to tour to begin with. Back then, when we were touring, Um, The record label wanted us to play so many shows that that we needed a tour bus. Mm. And they were like, here, we'll lend you money for a tour bus. But at the same time, all the money that was spent on what they call tour support, which is to get us out there, is taken back, not from the gross sales, it's taken back right out of our royalty account. Mm. So we pay for all of those expenses. And by the time you're all said and done, you—it's a recipe to not make money for the band, because it, because all of the money that comes in, whether it's from the shows or what have you, just gets reabsorbed. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now that I'm not on a record label, we take it at our own pace. We play, we pay, ve- play at venues that um, uh, that suit our popularity levels in different parts of the country, and. Um, the other thing that's great is that I'm not working with a whole bunch of people that have me running around doing all kinds of stuff that makes it so exhausting. I know that's what's involved in, in breaking a record, but nowadays, I just basically, you know, drive from one place to the next with my friends, and play shows i'm not having to go to radio stations all the time like it, I, I love talking to you guys in this in these circumstances mm-hmm. but when you're doing that six seven times a day
1: yeah. i it's mean much. it's, it's just much. way too yeah. much yeah, yeah, yeah. and
2: i would just you know when we got off the road for a week it felt like a day yeah. you know, it's enough time to do laundry and go to the doctor oh, yeah. and, and yeah. have dinner with your parents and then you were off again yeah. so this is a much more uh much more a satisfying and humane way of right, doing it. Right, right. I really enjoy it. And it gives you
1: time to do things like study classical music. <laughs> yes, it, cer- it certainly <laughs> Learn does. Learn the piano. <laughs> it might be too early to ask you this question, but do you think your interest in classical music will influence your music, your upcoming music?
2: You know, I really don't think it will. A lot of people ask me that. Um, but the rules of counterpoint are designed to make a very specific uh, style of music, and it would be kind of like um, trying to reinvent Bach. Doing mm, that, mm-hmm. you know, like Bach already did a very good job playing mm-hmm, in that right. genre. And I don't re- really need to go back in there and mm-hmm. mess it up. Uh, I kind of think it would be—I don't—I don't see it working that way. The other thing is that I don't really have any uh, intention of writing any new music. So mm-hmm. this is much more, uh, much more about personal satisfaction for yeah. me
0: so final question uh, uh, leave us with a fond memory that you have of the Bay Area or playing here or a venue you played at maybe that you really enjoyed, what uh, What do you got you've been, you know, you've toured this country so many times I'm sure, right
2: well we did play the Fillmore, yes, there you go uh, it's my favorite venue So <laughs> <It's> wonderful, wonderful <laughs> venue and an historically uh, informed venue it, I mean so many people have played there mm. and uh, right back at into the well I don't know when the first when it was first um, built, but of course some of the big acts from the 1960s were playing there. I mean mm. it's just got such a, a a huge reputation and a huge history that yeah. even back in the nineties when we played there, we felt like we were part of a you know long standing tradition yeah so that would be an absolute highlight for me yeah yeah, nice.
0: Brad, thank you for taking the time today,
2: and uh, have a great (laughs) set here tonight, okay? Thank you so much, and thank you for a great interview. You guys know what you're asking. Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it.
0: Was a little minuet uh, that Brad played for us uh, after uh, our interview on the uh, on the piano.
1: That was fun. I wasn't expecting that.
0: Right? You know, he, it's it's funny. So we uh, we started out at, uh, upstairs at the chapel, but they were doing sound checks, so that sound didn't really work. So we went over to the uh, bar that's attached to the uh, the chapel and chatted there. And and right next to it was his little piano and so as we were getting set up for the interview brad had you know was tinkering around and you heard a little bit of it at the beginning of the interview we put a little in and sprinkled a little in there as well
1: right yeah yeah It was this little shitty piano in the corner there and uh he'd been uh, practicing uh, a bit of piano and um felt inspired so we got to be a part of that
0: yeah it's pretty cool um and so jens that takes us to the last segment of the podcast what is it
1: it's time for music news
0: That's right. So we each have a couple of stories uh, to share with you on what's going on in the music biz right now. Yeah. uh, Things that are interesting. So um, I will, uh, I'll go first. Um, So Jay-Z.
1: Yeah. He's still Uh, around?
0: He's still around. Yes. Why is he still around? uh, Because he's making billions of dollars and is the king of music. Uh, (laughs)
1: All right. Well. I didn't uh, vote for him. Okay, so was
0: there a voting process here? Uh, Alrighty, uh, he's uh, he got together with the NFL to announce a new apparel line and music series to benefit social justice organizations. Um, yeah, so his Rock Nation and the NFL have uh, announced these programs to uh, to benefit the NFL's Inspire Change nonprofit, an initiative that seeks to fundraise for organizations committed to education and economic empowerment police and community re- relations, and criminal justice reform. Um, and so the uh, first program is Inspire Change Apparel, a new clothing line that will be revealed later this year. Um, and the second is uh, Songs of the Season, a program that's going to highlight musicians, debut their new songs during NFL broadcasts, hmm. uh, and p- uh, put all proceeds towards Inspire Change. Um, and so I think this is uh, is pretty cool because these... Usually, I mean, you hear these songs and you have it, uh by these artists that are like megastars and everything during NFL, mm. and so many millions of people watch the NFL that for the uh, artists to get a chance to have their music, you know, shared in this forum mm. like that is is really cool.
1: So are we talking about, like, independent artists are going to be sharing their music during the NFL, during commercials, or just while they're playing, or...
0: So, uh, so here's what here's what it says. So the first couple ones are Meek Mill, Megan Trainor, and Rhapsody. Those are the first artists to be announced for the program, and they're going to perform at the NFL Kickoff Experience in Chicago's Grant Park on September fifth. Mm,
1: hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. Well, That's cool. Um,
0: and so these groups are also going to work together on Super Bowl halftime programming, in addition to the NFL's Inspire Change uh, nonprofit. So, uh, so I think I think that's pretty neat. Um, Oh, phone's ringing, and I'm not going to answer that. So, (laughs) Uh, but um, I I think it's pretty neat for artists, you know, who are lesser known to kind of get that opportunity,
1: right? I think that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's always hard as a new artist to have your music heard, Um, and um, you know, like you said, there's a massive audience uh, involved in the NFL, so. Great, yeah. uh, Jay Z for getting that, um, moving forward.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. So, uh, so pretty cool. Uh, you have a story for us, Jens?
1: I do. It's a story about John Travolta, who I didn't know was a singer. Was he a singer? <laughs> this is music news <laughs> I, after it is, all. It
0: is music news, and, uh, <laughs> and I don't know that we want to hear him sing. It, so.
1: Uh, okay, so, um, apparently he and um. Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit. Limp Biscuit. We're in a movie together that just debuted, and the movie's called The Fantastic. It sounds Um, so fantastic, Jens. I know. I was going to say the movie is called The Fantastic Bomb, but that's not what the movie's called. Uh, The movie's called The Fantastic, which bombed at the box office
0: Ooh, okay that's a didn't see that one coming
1: yeah that sucks you never want to be in a movie um, and you know and have it bomb. that's kind of a letdown <laughs> Or if you do, you know, I'm sure that happens to a lot of people, but you shouldn't, you know, sh- shouldn't try to be Steve and blame yourself about, you know, for oh, it. Oh, yeah, well,
0: <laughs> you know, if you put those two together, I mean, you're not exactly asking for an Oscar, right?
1: <laughs> right. John Travolta, you know, I mean, when, when you think about him and movies, you know, you just got, you've got to think about Pulp Fiction. So if that's kind of the gold standard, it's really going to be hard to, you know, watch a movie with John Travolta in it and not be kind of disappointed, I guess, but... Um. So this was his latest film, uh, obviously, and uh, it was directed by uh, Fred Durst as well. It took in a measly three thousand one hundred and fifty-three dollars on Friday from fifty-two cinemas. Wait, how much was that? What the hell? How, how much was three thousand one hundred and fifty-three dollars?
0: Three thousand dollars for a John Travolta movie.
1: That's insane, but it was only in 52 cinemas. It's not like it was a you know massive release.
0: Yeah, but still on that
1: first Friday.
0: So three thousand. But
1: it was Labor Day weekend, you know, and people are out and about and wanting to do things.
0: Yeah. Three uh, f- thousand divided by fifty-two cinemas. That's fifty-seven dollars a theater yen. So.
1: <laughs> that's like how much people paid when they when they're done buying all the popcorn and crap to see the movie.
0: Yeah, I mean that's about the t- price of a tub of popcorn. Yeah, so, right.
1: Yeah. That in a half of a coke. Oh my god! You know, which is ninety-nine percent ice. Bomb is an understatement. So, and uh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I thought I was misreading it, that.
0: I mean. That's the amount you'd make if you, you know, if you put together all the people that accidentally just stumble into a movie theater, mm-hmm. you know, There's like, like nothing
1: else to do because everything else is booked, so you have to go see this one movie.
0: Right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's who uh, these people are, but that's not that's not the total for the entire Labor Day weekend. That's just that Friday night. So or Friday, yeah, Friday night. So, um, <laughs> wow, talking about bomb. Um... So that wasn't Travolta's first bomb. It was in fact his fourth bomb. In a row. Oh, okay. In a row. Oh,
0: okay. Time to time it, to put
1: it. It might be time to shift gears and maybe try singing or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it could be worse, right? So
1: Yeah. Um the it's a psychological thriller, and Travolta stars as a moose.
0: He's a moose in a psychological thriller? Or did you just... Re-
1: did, did I, I'm going to read that again. The psychological thriller stars, stars Travolta as Moose. Okay, his name is moose. Oh, his moose. oh, he isn't a moose? I thought he was a moose. See?
0: Yeah.
1: People were probably confused in the very beginning. Like, I don't understand this movie. His name is Moose? Why does he look like a moose?
0: Yeah. yeah, you know?
1: that, yeah. I would have been confused. I would have been like, I'm going to go buy some more popcorn. <laughs> it's,
0: <laughs> it's got... Uh, I'm looking at IMDb. It's got one star...
1: Wow, at least it got one star. I don't know rate? Can you rate something less than one star?
0: Probably not. Uh, The the Fanatic, yeah, it's... Oh, it's not even the Fantastic. It's called The Fanatic. Uh,
1: Well, the movie was said (laughs) to be inspired by a real-life story um, of a fan that once stalked the Limp Bizkit uh, frontman Durst.
0: Okay, and I see Devin Sawa was in it also, um, and I don't know all these other people, um, that, uh, that were in it. And I don't even see Fred Durst listed, uh, in the cast on IMDb. So, oh. but he might've been involved in making it or something. I, I don't know.
1: Well, it doesn't sound good. This just sounds shitty, man. That cause that's got to suck, you know, because putting a movie together is such a massive undertaking.
0: Yeah. Fred, so Durst, time re- Fred under- Durst wrote and directed it. Uh, yeah. Oh. and and John Travol just starting it, so
1: mm. special. Well, maybe it's one of those movies that nobody really understood because it was ahead of its time, and maybe in twenty years it'll be a huge hit.
0: Probably not. I don't think this is one of those that's going to fall into that category. You don't think it's like that? Yes. Yeah.
1: All
0: yeah. right, I got another story for you,
1: Jens Hit it.
0: All right, this is Ariana Grande. He's uh, she is suing uh, Forever Twenty One for ten million dollars. That's um, that
1: clothing store.
0: Yes. Uh, and so she's claiming that the company used her likeness uh, without permission, as well as music and lyrics from Seven Rings to promote a new cosmetic line. Um, and uh, so uh, she's asking for $10 million for the supposed misappropriation, uh, and uh, she's claimed the business, uh, which was founded by the Daughters of Forever 21's founders, uh, allegedly used at least 30 unauthorized Grande-related pictures and videos in its marketing campaign. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, it's kind of a no brainer that you need to get rights for that,
0: yeah. Well, and, and she said the company she uh, used a model who looks strikingly similar to her and used music and lyrics from her uh, hit, Thank You Next, uh, single Seven Rings. Um, and wow, yeah, so, um, I let me see here if there's any other information, but that's uh, that's that's pretty much the story right now, um. They Apparently Forever 21 has done this sort of thing before. Uh, in 2011, they faced scrutiny for selling a T-shirt that resembled Kurt Cobain's hand-drawn shirt that repped the punk band Flipper. Um, and uh, the company temporarily removed it from its website, but then relisted, re- uh, relisted it. So mm. they haven't learned their lesson, apparently. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Wow. That's, yeah. I mean, I don't know that much about the legal end of things, but it sounds like she has a good case there.
0: Yeah, uh, it sounds like it. I mean, it's too close, right? And they're making money off of her.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's not like she needs the money, but I mean, you've got to protect your...
0: Got to protect your brand.
1: Got to protect your brand, you know? Yeah. Exactly.
0: You got one more story for us, Jens?
1: I do. I got a story about a mask. Okay. Yeah. So we got Corey Taylor from Slipknot, uh, and he, quote, doesn't really care, end quote, if you hate his new mask okay yeah so i'm looking at a picture right now of him and his mask and um i can see why some people might hate his new mask i mean it's partially really cool and it's partially dreadful
0: yeah i wonder why he's going to a new mask because i feel like his mask has been the same the whole time i'm not a super slipknot fan but yeah like it's he's you know had the same look for most of their career
1: is this like a facelift or what is it? I don't even remember his old mask. It
0: might be a midlife crisis. Okay.
1: Maybe it's a midlife crisis. Yeah. Um, maybe he's kind of rebranding his image or something. I don't know. Uh, so he says, quote, I wanted it to be really off-putting, like you couldn't really look at it. Okay. End quote. Yeah, no, I, I can look at that. It's not really that off-putting. It's just it's more.
0: It looks kind of like Jason.
1: Yeah, I feel like he should Maybe. be in a horror movie Yeah But it's not like the type of mask that would give me a nightmare No um, You know, I think Jason probably, that, that mask would probably freak me out a lot more Yeah um, So anyway, yeah, he doesn't yeah. really give New a shit He doesn't care Doesn't care, people hate it
0: Alright, I got one more story for you, Jens Yes And it, uh, it has to do with the man, the myth, the legend David Grohl that's right.
1: Oh. so You're going to bless us
0: with a Grohl story. I am. Uh, what you got? So, so this one is about Noel Gallagher, uh, one of the Oasis brothers. All right. And so uh, he's igniting a feud with Dave Grohl, telling him to suck his dick over an Oasis
1: reunion. He wants to suck his dick or he wants Grohl <laughs> to suck his own dick?
0: I think there is some inferred dick sucking necessary or something. All right. All right.
1: Uh, uh, <laughs> got to be clear on who's sucking whose dick.
0: Yes. Uh, so, uh, Noel Gallagher lashed out at Dave Grohl after the Foo Fighters frontman enthused he'd uh, he'd be able to get Oasis back together. Mm. Um, and so, uh, as he tried to get the battling brothers back with uh, battling battling brother Noel back with Liam for a festival appearance, um, and Dave told the uh, uh, Reading Festival he was trying to reunite the warring, po- po- ah, warring pair. And according to reports, he told the crowd, one of these days we'll get Oasis back, right? Mm -hmm. Let's sign a petition, everyone here. He added, how many people want to see Oasis fucking play a show? Uh, While Dave was just being the legend we know him as, Noel apparently didn't take too kindly to the matchmaking attempt. He's like, (laughs) I'm not going to fucking play with that guy. Right, you know? (laughs) Right. And so uh let's see uh word appeared to get back to noel who was playing a gig back in california with his uh high-flying birds band uh and uh, he he's addressing the crowd in dave's rally cry uh and so there's video of course where uh, noel asks the crowd so you're going to sign the petition mm-hmm. <laughs> if the fucking drummer of nirvana wants to get Oasis back together he can come uh, up on stage and suck my fucking dick anytime he likes
1: Interesting. Oh, okay. So he wants Girl to suck his own dick. To,
0: and if Girl does that, will Oasis get back together? Is the question.
1: Mm. I don't know if it's really that important. Uh, it doesn't sound Oasis to get back together. Like, <laughs> why would you go through all that effort? That seems like a lot of work.
0: Um, yeah, and so uh, that's not going to get the band back together. And so he flipped the coin by declaring, "I hereby start a petition to break up the Foo Fighters." Really? Anyone can fucking sign it. Anyone free can fucking sign it.
1: What does that even mean? Like, is there a law somewhere if you have a million votes on some (laughs) (laughs) petition and then then it has to happen, the government will support it?
0: (laughs) The government will support any petition with over a million votes, right? Yeah. It's like,
1: okay, this this video of Dave sucking dick got a million (laughs) likes on YouTube, so we're going to support this now.
0: Yeah.
1: And then you have government funding.
0: And then it has to happen. Yeah. I'm sure that's how it I works.
1: think that's how, that's how I learned it.
0: Uh, it's, it doesn't sound like a, an Oasis reunion is going to happen, but I'm pretty sure Foo Fighters are not going to be breaking up.
1: I don't think I would go to an Oasis concert if they got back together.
0: No. I did see them once before they broke up. I think probably on their last tour before they broke were up. Were they good? They were pretty good. They were mm-hmm. pretty good. I enjoyed it, yeah. And it was nostalgic because Oasis was one of those bands that I grew up on, and it, they were like one of my favorite first bands.
1: Yeah, I kind of they sort of passed me by. I don't know. I have no idea why there's one of those bands that did a couple of really great songs, but I don't.
0: Yeah. I had, I I I I had a really cassette. Of, I had a cassette of their album. What's the story more in glory uh, mm. that I listened to over and over
1: a mm. lot. So,
0: uh, so I was an Oasis fan and, be happy if they got back together but i'm realistic and it doesn't look like that's going to happen so
1: was your tape player or cd player or whatever like broken and it just kept on repeating it over and over again just kept on Were you
0: forced just, to listen yes, to it i was forced <laughs> i probably didn't have money to buy any other tapes or wasn't given any by my parents or anything like that so it, it was limited but, but listen to that it you know got me through some hard stuff so.
1: yeah, yeah 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 i just i'm sorry i just have a really bad um uh i don't know it's just i just remember the thing when i think of oasis i think of two things like oh my god they had some really good songs i liked and then i think of the 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 time where they said they're better than the beatles or something oh and i'm like are you fucking kidding me i'm never listening to this band they are arrogant fuckers
0: yeah (laughs) they're very arrogant and full of themselves and And
1: that was a huge turnout for me yeah
0: and not very friendly to each other so Mm, yeah there's that
1: hard to get back together if you're not really friendly to your other bandmates yeah but uh egos
0: that's the story so um don't think it's gonna happen i'm guessing anytime soon uh
1: maybe some dick sucking but i don't think um i don't think they're gonna get back together no
0: Well, good times. That's our show for today, Jens. Uh,
1: All right. Sounds good, Steve. Uh, This is Concert Pipeline. Do we have anything coming down the pipeline?
0: I like what you did there. Uh, So we... uh um, we might have an interview I think in about two weeks so I think we'll probably have next week off um, mm-hmm. but we're looking at interviewing a band called Love Fame Tragedy Oh so, right. Uh, so that sounds uh, pretty cool they're going to be playing at the Rickshaw stop in San Francisco on September 17th mm-hmm. so tickets are available for that mm-hmm. uh, and uh, hopefully we'll come back with an interview with, uh, with the guys so nice. um, that's our show for today I want to thank Crash Test Dummies and uh, so for all of us here at Concert Pipeline, that's Jen Schiphol. And
1: that is Steve Jones.
0: We'll catch you next time.
1: See ya.